Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, a surprise episode to get you into March as we share Bolelli's conversation with the Astral Hustle podcaster, Corey Allen, as they ponder many concepts, including truth versus identity. You won't need that life jacket so much if you just learn to swim. The notion that understanding is a combination of intelligence, awareness, and kindness, and most importantly, learning how to live a happy life. Here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dallas Podcast begins now. Welcome back to episode 130 of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Uh, today, I know we said we weren't going to do an episode, but Bellelli got permission from Corey Allen, who does the Astral Hustle Podcast, to do like a, a double play of the conversation they had a little earlier this week. And so that's what we're going to do. So real quickly, we'll go through the folks that are responsible for helping to get all this together. You already know who they are, but Datsusera and all their incredible hemp products from geese to hoodies to the backpacks I've been carrying around for years now. Solid construction, awesome material, hemp to save the world, Datsusera. And of course, our friends at Onnit, O-N-N-I-T, human optimization, everything from sea salts to Captain America barbell plates. That's a good combination right there. You have to check their website to see what sort of amazing things they have available because there's a ton of them. Uh, I know Daniele loves the Alpha Brain. Or you could go get you some Buffalo Bison delicious uh, jerky bars. See? There's uh, too many things to even explain. Get to the website and go get yourself something. And finally, our friends at Sure Design T-Shirts. That's right. Happy nipples for a happy planet. Soft, awesome designs from Ganesh's to Ankh's to who knows what else you can find in there. Plus, it's not just that. If you need some of those awesome uh, MC Hammer harem pants, you can probably find those as well or something very close to it. So, sure design t-shirts on it. Datsusera, the Holy Trinity. Uh, go, to the, go to the show notes to look for discounts. And real quick, I also want to invite you to check out Kiva.org. Come join Team Drunken Dallas as we spiral in towards $100,000 alone from your fellow listeners to help folks out across the whole world. Uh, get a loan, get paid back, loan again. That's the way it works, so I invite you to join us. So let's get into this conversation with our little surprise episode so you guys didn't have to go a whole month without getting to hear some fancy Italian accents. So here we go. One of the things I noticed just sort of looking at your your feed and seeing the general thoughts and things you put out over the last even couple of years mm-hmm. is whenever there are 
these public intellectuals that flow through the public space, this could be someone like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or Jordan Peterson or Neil deGrasse Tyson or whoever it might be. Mm -hmm. You always seem to have this particular conflict or issues with those people. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I'm curious what your stance is, how you feel about their being popularized idealizers out there, uh, you know, either in or out of academia, and why you might think that is a good thing or why you might take issue with it. I guess you're, uh, you're my latest tweet on the topic referring to the fact that I personally find Kim Kardashian's ass much more interesting than the entire body of work of 99% of these people. And as I mentioned, I don't even really like that much Kim Kardashian's ass. <laughs> so it's something about it. Yes. You know what it is, is I'm interested in, uh, I'm interested, I'm not interested in ideas for ideas sake. I don't really give a fuck about somebody being smart in a IQ kind of way. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the ideas in the measure that they create, that they elevate the quality of life, in in the measure that they make something beautiful, in the measure that uh, that's what I like. Um, I'm not really into jerking around, showing how smart we are with some ultra sophisticated argument. Now, of course, what I just said, there's a very subjective quality to it, because, you know, for me, I may listen to an idea and think, you know, that's a bunch of hot air. The next person, they say, change my life. It helped mm-hmm. me. This, that. And in that case, good. You know, I have nothing against it. Um, my personal perception of a lot of what goes as, uh, quote unquote, public intellectuals is a lot of posturing, is a lot of, um, it's a lot of ideas that to me seem both dry and joyless. Again, completely subjective judgment, and I understand that. Okay, somebody has a different feel on it, good for you. Uh, that is just my personal perception. And in general, I never really trust anybody who to closely identify with the notion of I am an intellectual. It's like, go fucking put some seeds in the garden and grow some tomatoes or something. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I find it often really pretentious and kind of obnoxious in attitude. Mm-hmm. Do you think that? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Do you think that any of those people, maybe not ones I mentioned, but any people out there who have a lot of traction that are essentially sharing and computing ideas in the public space, do you think any of them are helping or adding to the equation or adding to the conversation? I'm not saying everybody. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying because otherwise, why are we even on a podcast talking or why? You know, I think that is. Plenty of room for I. I mean, clearly, I'm not saying it because um, I want a pull pot kind of. Let's go back to agrarian society and kill all the intellectuals. That's not where I'm going with that. I think it's precisely because I value ideas. I, I'm somewhat protective of what my standards are. Tend to be a little high and selective when it comes to the ideas I want to adopt, not because I don't care for them, but because precisely because I value them a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just intrigued with any idea that sounds cool or anybody who can spin a sentence in a flowery way. 
I'm really just interested in the stuff that I see having major potential to increase the degree of joy of human beings. That's what I'm interested in. The other stuff, eh, eh, eh. and you know, there are people, for example, I don't know, let me pick a positive example, somebody I really dig, um, Dan Carlin, you know, both uh, podcaster for Hardcore History and Common Sense. Dan is a to me, an incredibly smart human being. I love listening to him because he's, um, he kind of exercises my mental muscles. I love his outlook on reality. I find it useful. And that's, I think, is the key thing, is I find it very useful. Um, again, I have no, I don't have the slightest pretense that my standards are absolute and objective and everybody need to like the people I like and be remaining kind of blah about the people I don't. But from my own personal judgment, that's kind of where it's at. Yeah, I think there's definitely a way to have an idea, no matter how big or how small or how nuanced or how much detail that you might have in it. And to be able to talk about it in a way that is conversational and that is still, you know, dare I say the word entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. You know, where it's, it's not a dictation of theory. It is something that involves the listener. Yep. And I think that there's so much to understanding that. And I, I think it says a lot about the person who's doing the speaking. If one is able to convey an idea not at who they're talking to or at their audience but with the audience so that the listener feels like they're included in the conversation i think that that shows a level of humanness that is very important in sharing ideas because who wants to be lectured at yeah absolutely and i think what you brought up which is an excellent point about what it says about some of these people one of the things that I notice, and I always like, huh, why am I paying attention to this? Because I think it's exactly what you just said, because it reveals something about people's characters. A lot of the people who are touted as public intellectuals seem to be completely lacking into the humor department. Mm -hmm. like I never laughed listening to these people. And I don't need, you know, to tell me the knock-knock jokes while you're telling me some super smart thing. But to me, humor is not just some random gratuitous comedy. It's also part of what is just an outlook on life, you know? Whereas when I listen to a lot of these guys, even when they are making good points, I look at their faces and they look constipated to me. <laughs> you know, they look like they are uh, struggling with this. I am so deep and this is so hard. And I'm just like, hey, man, lighten up. You know, mm -hmm. life is outside. Go take a walk and, you know, enjoy the sunshine. Yes, that clinching is an interesting thing to recognize in someone's face. I know, to me, I look at people who are attempting to convey something intelligent or what they find to be intelligent or well-considered or whatever it might be. And you're right, the face that's often made is one of a furled brow of a, <laughs> of a veins in the neck and and some type of wild animalistic looking eye focus or something like that and while i understand the you know all the implications of that whether they might be from a from an animalistic standpoint we are told okay show everyone else with your facial response what's happening inside of you right now 
that's our the mm -hmm. body language communication and you're telling someone hey i'm deep in my head right now and i'm really trying to excavate these pieces of this thought that i get out that i feel is very important i understand the pantomime of that uh, however i do feel like it's a double-edged sword in that if someone is that clenched while they are excavating their idea, it means that the ability for them to, or rather the possibility for them <laughs> to remain open to something beyond their own consideration is very, very small. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely, that to me is exactly where it's at. There's, um, I just dug up a Nietzsche quote that I dig a lot that I find, uh, I'll just read it to you real quick. It said, we should consider every day lost on which we have not danced at least once. And we should call every truth false, which was not accompanied by at least one laugh. How cool is that? We should call every truth false, which, is not, um, which was not accompanied by at least one laugh. This idea that depth and laughter can not only can, but almost should go hand in hand. Because <laughs> are part of the same thing to me. To me, wisdom and wisdom is funny. Wisdom is, uh, you know, finding wisdom in this weird paradoxical universe should not be these, uh, you know, tight and butt cheeks and mm -hmm. F, F, mental effort. It's uh, we live in a world in which. You know, there are the goofiest animals and there are boobs and there are tomatoes in the garden. And there's, it's like, we live in a very funny universe. And I think like anybody wanting to make grandiose statements about the nature of the universe should kind of remember that. And, and ultimately it's, we're here to enjoy life. You know, we're here to play, we're here to have fun while all the drama and the greatness and all the other stuff is happening. It's all part of the same thing to me. Mm -hmm. Yes, the last section of my book, it's very funny to say that because the last section is called Nothing Frustrates Death More Than Laughter. <laughs> I love that title. That's great. Because <laughs> yes. whenever, of course, it doesn't need explanation, but in the, the mortality, the weird fear that everyone has about their own lack of existence, you know, people yep. get so consumed by it and i think hey i don't know if i've posed this to you before but this is this working theory i've had for some time is that if you track back every human action you can mm -hmm. track it to their awareness of their own mortality sure yep i think it's a big one mm -hmm. i think it's very i mean it's kind of hard to escape from right it's mm -hmm. like it's a huge part of uh life as the, the entire experience of life as we know it is uh, by realizing the limits of it all and uh, you know dealing with that existential awareness is not it's not exactly an easy game yes and i think that bringing a sense of levity to it makes it what it is it yep. is it's just the final joke of life is death mm -hmm. that's the last laugh <laughs> <laughs> Right. And if you don't laugh while you're dying, then that's hell. That's the mythology of hell is laying in your bed with a head full of regrets right. and resentments. Yeah. 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 Big time. I do love the thing about that Nietzsche quote is that I love visualizing Nietzsche dancing. Yeah. <laughs> I know that 
funny that Nick is not exactly the poor guy who grew up in Germany in the late 1800s. Those are heavy vibes, man. That's not an easy, and he had a shitty life, and he had, you know, a lot of really heavy things happening. And in many cases, you can see that his philosophies, his ideas are weighed down by all this heaviness all around him. But because he was a damn genius, he has these moments, you know, these moments of insight where suddenly he transcends all that shit and he comes out with something incredibly beautiful. And then, you know, he's brought back down by all of his experience, too. which is why, you know, at one point for the Drunken Taoist podcast, we made this T-shirt with uh, Nietzsche in uh, board shorts carrying a surfboard and a bottle of wine. Because that's the idea, right? It's like, I love Nietzsche's passion and depth and intensity, and I love where he's going. You know, he's trying to go in this more lighthearted direction, but, you know, he's stuck in the Germany of the 1800s. And mm -hmm. so imagining a more a happier Nietzsche, a lighthearted Nietzsche, a Nietzsche who can surf, uh, <laughs> that to me is human evolution right there. I agree. I agree. Do you think that any of these thinkers that are renowned yet cut out of marble in with their seriousness do you think that it's possible that they just simply order their sequence of where they place certain things and allow themselves to feel certain things in life differently than other people because it, it's hard for me to imagine and perhaps it's just myself or people that i know but i can't imagine someone just not having a good sense of humor at least at some point I'm certain it's out there, but I feel like laughter and the ability to just compute the absurd or attempt to, it, it seems just such an inherently human thing that it's hard for me to picture some of those people at least not finding some lightness in their private lives. Well, and that's where I, I'm, I'm not so sure. To me, it's like, when I look at certain faces, those are faces who have never laughed that much. Mm -hmm. like they are keeping an appearance in public, but suddenly they are a barrel of monkeys in private. To me, <laughs> to me what you consider a very human thing, I consider it a very human thing too, which is why I consider some of this stuff very inhuman, you know, very... Mm -hmm taking intelligence in a purely abstract way and running so like putting that on steroids at the price of losing so many other parts of life, which makes you human and ultimately, which makes you, in my opinion, really intelligent. Like to me, intelligence is not measured in that way. To me, I don't even like the word intelligence. I like wisdom better because to me, wisdom is applied intelligence. It's not being smart in a bookish way. It's not being smart necessarily, and I can put together a great argument kind of way. Wisdom may have that quality, but doesn't have to have it. Wisdom to me is applied into maybe somebody who's, uh, you know, never read a book in their life, but they are masters at making their kids laugh at them, laugh with them around, you know, and uh, be able to shift the emotional mood in a room or be able to do things like that. It's like, I don't really give a fuck how many books you read. If you can do that, I bow to you and you are my master. You know what I mean? It's like, so um, that's more what I'm interested in. And I think that sometimes the cult of intelligence in a nerdy way loses those aspects along the way to celebrate what's only one of 10,000 parts of what create wisdom. 
I agree. And I think that you know, this is something, another thing I was writing in my book. I don't want to make it sound like I just came up with this, but you know, knowledge intersects with life. That's whenever wisdom arises. Yep. Yeah, 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 precisely. And yes, I mean, the idea of the stone-faced intellectual, you know, th there's a certain point where I feel like that becomes its own pathology in this way, and it becomes this way through the danger of that, and I only know this through experience of how I was in my early 20s, was that armoring yourself with knowledge is a way to one understand yourself and the universe more or mm -hmm. attempt to but it's also a way to protect yourself because if you have an intellectual reason in a way to logicize everything that comes at you in life you can remain numb to the penetrating feelings that one feels being human and you can rationalize and defend against these things and it becomes this defense mechanism in a lot of ways of course it definitely i mean anytime when you develop one particular side of your personality to super steroid levels and compared to the others you know you're doing it for a reason you're doing it because it fulfills a function you're doing it because maybe it's your shield in front of reality some people become really incredibly funny to shield their pain, mm -hmm. you know, and that's uh, that aspect. And yeah, if everything is all laugh and jokes, but is I have nothing against that. That's awesome. But again, maybe you're going about it in a way that's not the most balanced. Um, that's what I mean by I'm interested in ideas that are applicable to life. I'm interested in how. I don't, I'm not arguing humor, great, intelligence, bad, none of that. I'm arguing for all of these different, what we label these different qualities, how they can interact together in shaping a better human being, a better way of living, a better way to interact with other humans. That's what interests me, you know, all the other stuff, really just give me again Kim Kardashian's ass that's more <laughs> well this excites me because I'm going to get you to to review my book because you're literally describing my exact approach is taking what I think are coherent useful and truthful ideas about ways that you a person can increase their awareness their self-awareness mm -hmm. and therefore reduce their suffering and live a, a more open and positive life have a, just a better human experience for them and the people around them and i've really tried to do that with a, a mixture of of intellect that has been that has had a, a flag of humor planted every three sentences just to keep things exactly in that balance that you're talking about because i know myself if i if i were to try and explain something in the way that i think about it it would be a dry, long, dense, unreadable type of hunk of, of marble. But the way that I communicate things is where the humor often comes into it. And I think that that's an important, you know, as we we're talking about, it's such an important thing to sew into uh, the other side of one's mind. So, all these ideas you were describing 
and talking about what are the ideas that generally some of the larger ones that you do find really valuable in the ways that they're expressed and in the ways that they are helpful towards people? Um, there are many clearly. And of course, what you're asking is big, you know, that's you're asking, what is the secret of life? Basically, <laughs> that, uh, the, um, so let's break it down. Let me try to think in a way that would be in bite-sized pills. Um, okay, so let's start with something very basic. Something like the relationship with physicality, with one's body, with... Uh, that to me is very interesting right there, is how a certain mindset... You know, there are 10,000 different ways of relating to one's physical self or just to the physical nature of reality. I'm interested in the ways that enable people to see the body not as an obstacle, to be overcome, not as a physical, just as a limitation, but as a source of joy and strength and confidence. I'm interested in those who figure out practical ways, whether it's uh, training in martial arts, whether it is uh, lifting weights, whether it is climbing mountains, whether it is... I'm interested in specific disciplines and how they uh, and how they help um, put us in touch with this kind of raw, more primitive part of who we are, and turn really the physical experience of living in the body into a source of joy. And that to me is huge because there are a gazillion people who don't do that, who are, who are completely divorced from their physical self and their experience of physicality is um, really lacking. And that doesn't just affect their bodies, that affects their minds, that affects their moods, that affects how they relate to other people. So, you know, if you want to go in bite-sized components, let's start with that. Let me, let me respond to that one first. I think that that's such an important and poignant thing for you to start out with. And I couldn't agree more. It took me until I was 30 to realize what you're talking about and it dawned on me that i am a being that is nested in physical space mm -hmm. why am i not sharpening the knife of my own physicality and this as soon as i realized that oh i am a physical object in physical space i should probably tone and tune into the boundaries of my own being it changed the way that i thought it popped me out of my existential paralysis <laughs> and uh it was one of the the biggest most important changes that i've made absolutely because it's uh you know we live in a body everything that we go through is physical every even what we consider emotion i mean even intelligence is the even the nerdiest aspect of ourselves, which may seem completely separate from the physical, is very much affected by our bodies, by, uh, you know, what's floating, what's in our stomach, what's in our brain, what kind of uh, chemicals are floating through us. All of this has a strongly physical component. So not giving it its proper attention, that makes, you know, that's a recipe to make life miserable. It is, and it's interesting to me to think about when one tries to divorce the idea of intellect or consciousness from physicality, 
it exposes such a blind spot to me in a person's thinking because if you were actually to think about the emergent properties of consciousness that you know as far as what neuroscience tells us now is composed of electrical impulses neurons firing to different parts of the brain in systematic ways that are non-repetitive somehow mm-hmm. that firing of neurons brings forth the arising of a conscious a sense of self and a sense of i and awareness that is a physical property the you know the the neurons in your brain that are shooting electricity through synapses to other neurons that is a product of the unfolding of the physical world and just because that the eye is a byproduct of that happening um, doesn't mean that it's anything different. It means that actually it is a causal effect of the physical state of your own body and your own brain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm always impressed with people who are able to transcend their physical limitations and do some amazing stuff, but that is despite their physical limitation. It's not that they are not affected, it's that these guys are badasses and they're able to somehow still they have so much amazing stuff in them that they can do it even in a fucked up body. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, we're going to get a blog post about this after we release it for a society for angry brains in jars? Is that no. I was going to I identify as a brain in a jar and I was very offended by those yeah, two I gentlemen. A lot of people may not say it, but that's how they live, mm-hmm. you know. Even if you look at um, look at education in school, you know, your body's begging to stretch, to move, to do something. And instead, you're supposed to sit in these little chairs, look forward. Somebody shows up, they go blah, 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 blah. And all you do is, you know, go, uh-huh, and take notes. You know, the message that all that system is giving you is that your body has absolutely nothing to do with who you are that what's being educated is this little gnome that's stuck inside your brain and that's the real you. And the body's just an accident, you know, mm-hmm. it's just something that takes you from point A to point B. There's, uh, you can be 500 pounds or 100 pounds and be, none of that matters. That's completely secondary to who you really are deep down. Um, no, it's not. You know, the, 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 your physical experience has a humongous impact on who you are. Is not just a secondary accident. It is, it's not the only thing you are, but it's a big part of who you are. And it shapes and it interacts with all your other elements. Do you try and combat that restlessness or the discomfort of physicality in your own classes? No. Uh, I think it's like tough shit. This mm-hmm. is just tough. There's not a whole lot. I mean, it would require such a humongous change in the way, I mean, just even the physical space of a classroom where there are all these chairs bolted into place, stuck for, yeah, good luck changing that, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, do you, how many, how many students do you generally teach at one time? uh, About 50 on average. Mm -hmm. That's about the typical range. And, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot you can play with there. I mean, I will have the, you know, as far as classroom stuff, it's like, I don't give a fuck if you need to get up every three minutes, you need to go to the bathroom, you need, you want to eat in the classroom, you want to, all of that I, doesn't bother me a bit. 
Um, so, you know, people sometimes are hard asses about things like that. I definitely am not. But I really wouldn't even know where to start to uh, change it within the existing structure, you know, within a university with seats bolted in place where you have to be in the classroom. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how, how that would change. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I do tend to implement is just telling people, look, I understand you have to be here hour after hour after hour and everybody asking you to focus. I'm going to ask you to focus for less time. You know, give me your full focus and I'm just going to let you out early or I'm just going to give you a break at the end. Something, you know, it's like I'd rather you give me high quality focus for less time than try to drag you on forever when eventually, you know, your body wants to, you know, I'll let you out early, do whatever, you go out, step in the sun, do what you need. But um, let's just, if we're doing this purely weird mental space, which is how college works, okay, let's do it with a particular attitude. Now, like we are here to, we are subjected to it. We just take charge, charge forward, get into it, get out, boom, down there are other parts to life. Go do them. I think that's a wise approach. I mean, you look at people that work in offices and I think there's a reason why flex time has become such a popular mode of working because they realize that in an eight-hour day, most people are working about two hours. Which is why, to me, I don't even understand that because thanks to internet and stuff, you don't really need to be in an office for most jobs. Mm-hmm. If I was handling an office, I would ask people to, you know, if you want to show up once every two weeks just to show your face and we see each other and say, hello, great. But other than that, for all I care, spend the day on the beach with your laptop and, you know, you go swim in the ocean, come out get your work done as long as your work is getting done and the quality is good and it's done in the right what do i care you know have fun Mm -hmm. work only two hours a day for all i care if in those two hours you can produce what's needed that's it done i wonder if that restriction on having everything be that fluid is because it's so hard to fire people these days and if they give that much leeway to that much people, at least a quarter to a half of them are going to completely disrespect that amount of freedom. And then when they don't do their work, you're not able to fire them because you need to build a case, you know, in order to to terminate someone, as far as I understand in the corporate world. This comes from a guy who spends all all day alone every day. But but, but that's what I've heard. No idea what the rules of the games are in that case, but yeah, that would be a problem because mm-hmm. yeah, you need to be able to make the judgment call and say, okay, this is not getting done. Sorry. You know, we tried it once, we tried it twice, enough, we're done, you know, you but, know, oh, sorry, go ahead. No problem. No, recently it dawned on me something funny. I was speaking of classroom. I was thinking of whenever I was in high school and in middle school, how I did a lot of sleeping while I was in school. And if I wasn't sleeping, I, I had earbuds. So I'd put my, my CD player at the time in the nineties in my backpack and then run the headphone wire under my shirt and then have that coming up through my collar and then have my long hair over my headphones. So I could just listen to music and look like I was paying attention or 
whatever, oh. have a, a Nietzsche book or whatever it might be inside of my textbook for whatever class I was right. sitting in. So it looked like I was reading. And I was thinking about all of this recently and I thought, why didn't any of those teachers try and discipline or correct what I was doing? And I realized that perhaps it's just a matter of being an adult and thinking back to that is if you're dealing with 50 maniacs that are all 15 years old and, you know, very teetering on the edge of combustion, that just having one disengage is probably a relief in some way more than anything. Well, and also the thing is, you know, we're all adults. You want to pay attention, pay attention. You don't want to pay it. Like, I don't even have, um, in my classes, I don't even require people to be there. It's, you know, sometime at 10, big deal in some courses. My thing is, look, of course, attendance is a big deal because that's what's going to help you to do well, and that's how you're going to absorb things. But, you know, I'm not your mom, and I'm not a cop, and I don't want to be your mom, and I don't want to be a cop. So, you know, you're an adult. Do what you want. Or be, or you need to leave early, leave early. You want to not be, it's like, man, you know, it's, it's not my job to police you, you know? It's mm -hmm. you decide whether this is valuable to you and it helps you. And if it is, you'll probably show up. And if it's not, no amount of me badgering you along the way is going to really change much because you're just going to find more creative ways not to pay attention. And, and that's fine, you know? If, I'm, if what I'm offering is not making you want to pay attention, then the problem is not with the student, the problem is with what I'm doing. Or at least with the interaction between the two, where maybe, you know, it's really just where I'm going and where you're going, the wires don't click, you know, they, and, and that's fine. That's completely okay in my book. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to do it. Yeah, I don't have these uh, people get all pissed off in the classroom and they want attention. It's like, you need to give me respect. Nobody need to give you shit, man. You're doing your thing. You know, what they owe you is not be disruptive. Yes, you know, nobody, that's not cool to disrupt somebody else's work. But as far as giving you attention, you earned that. You, you earned it by being interesting. And, uh, and if somebody's still not interested, despite your best effort, hey, you tried and you guys just don't click, which is fine. Yeah, I think that's absolutely what I think most teachers should aspire to, because it also puts more pressure, not necessarily pressure, I guess it puts um, the intent of the teacher increases, you know, the effort increases, because if you're trying to convey something, and people are disengaged, and that should tell you something about the way that you're communicating. And speaking of, I guess, circling back to the whole public intellectual thing, you know, one thing that I've noticed in academia a lot, which is also what I notice a lot with some of these guys, there's this, what to me is masculine security, this sense of I am an expert, you need to listen to me because I'm the smart one. Can't you see I have my smart hat on? I am... You know, it's like I've had uh, courses where I walk in and I see somebody else teaching and, you know, the first thing they say is, hello, students, my name is doctor. And, you know, about five words in, we're done already. It's mm -hmm. like, I know you're an asshole. It's like, your name is not doctor or anything, dickhead. Your name is Joe Blow, whatever. <laughs> it's like, and you are just trying to pump yourself up and assume this aura of authority because the reality is that you have no personal authority. Nobody's going to give you attention because of who you are. The only way you can claim attention is 
by making appeals to some kind of, hey, look at all the years I've put into this. I am the expert on the topic. And the thing is, you will convince people who are as insecure as you are, who will respect those badges of honor, despite the fact that you really don't have a lot to offer. I see that a lot. I see that a lot, a lot, a lot. This um, this desperate need to claim, uh, you know, I am. You should respect me. It's like nobody should respect you. People shouldn't treat you like crap for sure. But respect is earned. Respect is to me is like if somebody, if a huge percentage of your class doesn't want to listen, it's not their fault. It's yours. You know, it's because. If I was doing a good enough job where it fascinates people, it makes people go, holy shit, let me listen to this guy. Then I wouldn't have to be, I wouldn't need to scream about, hey, pay me my proper respect. Mm -hmm. Like when people do that, it's already an admission of defeat. It's like a parent who says, uh, you know, you live under my roof. You need to listen to my rules. That means you have already failed as a parent. You're done. You know, that's like raising the white flag and say, I suck as a parent. So I'm going to claim some kind of authority because everything is leaping through my fingers. <laughs> yes. Yes. And one of the weird byproducts I've recognized in either perhaps teaching, but definitely the intellectual public space is that it's sort of this negative byproduct of the whole game itself because in order to be a person that is disseminating ideas in a public space you have to take stances on things and because you have to build an identity for the way yeah. that you uh approach topics the way that you feel about all of the the topics of the day that are being chewed on and discussed so you build these cases towards uh, your stance and then you have to defend your stance. And that was what comes a lot of the public discourse between yep. people is saying, I have this stance, you have an opposing stance. Now we're going to go at each other and we're going to defend our, our views on these things and try and see if we can either find out where each other have holes or really narrow down the point in which we agree to just the bits of where we disagree and then try and systematically go through those things. And while that is a very beneficial approach to, I think it's the, it really one of the real ways and most effective ways towards figuring out new ideas and really figuring something out. That's truly a good way to get to something new because if you're just sitting around agreeing with someone all day, well, you're just patting each other on the back. There's no real newness being forced and no thing being uncovered i guess by force but if you're finding where you disagree and trying to sort that out it's a very active way into discovering perhaps what might be the most realized way of thinking about something however in that need to build a system of stances and a system of defendable viewpoints on all these topics it, it inherently traps a person into their own ideology Absolutely. And I think that's precisely the problem that what you're saying, you know, these, we don't need to always agree. We can throw things around and figure it out together. That requires two people who are willing to play that game. So there's open-mindedness, there's not being judgmental, there's, you know, throwing opinions, but at the same time, not being an asshole about it. Because what's going to happen if somebody else is on offensive mode, the other person is going to put on the defensive mode. And so it's like, I'm not going to acknowledge a good point you made, 
because you're going to use it to just break me down and you know this is this is becoming a competition as opposed to a friendly sparring match mm-hmm. friendly sparring match we figure out each other weaknesses we learn from each other it's like oh damn i keep making that mistake and yeah thank you for pointing that out that's different from somebody trying to take your head off you know Right. And a lot of the public discussions are people trying to take each other's head off intellectually. They are not people trying to spar with one another and make each other's ideas better. They are out to tear each other down and to quote unquote win. That's a very different kind of game. Um, I completely. So, you know, you really need two people to be willing to play that game. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you said about the, you know, people ending up becoming caricatures of themselves because they now are invested in this identity and they have to always defend the same idea and never change and always argue. That's why everything works that way. You know, it's kind of like if we're going to set up the debate, okay, let's get who's the top atheist guy and let's get him with the top uh, hardcore religious fundamentalist and we'll sit back and see what happens. It's not a, huh, let's get this guy with some really nuanced position that's not so easily stuck in one label. That's hard. That, to me, is much more interesting. That's where discussion is really fascinating. But it's not the way things work because it's not that easily identifiable. You know, is most of the time is like we want, uh, even when they put you in the bookstore, in, it needs to fit under some heading. So if you write, uh, you know, on the topic of religion, for example, if you write the hardcore atheist book, you have a market. There are all the angry atheist guys who are going to listen. If you write uh, apology for some kind of religion, you have all the believers in that religion who are an audience. If you write something that doesn't really neatly fit in any camp, you're writing for human beings who want to be free from labels which potentially is everybody, but in reality is very few people. And that's, of course, that's the nature of the business. And that's, I kind of expect it to be that way. But again, it's sort of a annoying commentary in realizing how attached people are to a clear cut, never changing, almost dogmatic sense of identity. Absolutely. And there's a real easy way to circumvent that from happening. And that is just whenever one goes to identify themselves publicly, that identification contains the description of I'm someone who is open to revising the way I think in learning because I'm Mm -hmm. interested in truth, not in identity. And I think one of the reasons why that does not often happen is because People don't like to watch that in a lot of cases. I think the reason why a lot of public debaters or intellectuals garner large audiences is because those two binary modes of thinking, as you said, whether it be a, a atheist and a religious person or whatever, arguing, that creates this combustion that people enjoy watching in the form of entertainment and also whoever's side that they're on, it's a way of reinforcing one's own biases. So Mm -hmm. that combustion is something that people like watching. They like to feel better about their own beliefs. And every time that they see a jab land uh, on the opponent, it's enjoyable to them. And then they're blind often to, or they rationalize away the blows landed by their, uh, the other person. 
and the thing about the the type of thinking that you and I were describing, one which is revisable and and continues to evolve, I think it is challenging for people to get into those ways of thinking or to pursue those ways of thinking because the combustion doesn't happen outside between two people uh, mm -hmm. that you can watch and be entertained by. It happens inside within your own identity. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, I almost feel sad for people who get trapped in that game because then they are not free to change their mind. You know, it's like they hold on to identity as uh as as a lifeboat, you know, what's the word in English for that thing that you put around your waist when you don't want to drown? Oh, um, that's a good question. Or, or life jacket, I guess. Yeah. That's the other one, the one that you actually put on and strap to yourself. But, you mm -hmm. know, they hold on to it as a life jacket as opposed to just fucking learn how to swim. Mm -hmm. That would have been a little, like, you don't need to be so damn afraid to let go. You don't need to stick, you're free to change your mind, you know, you don't need to, and I don't think that's something that people are comfortable with, because you want to have a simple, clear-cut answer anytime the question is asked, and you are, many people are uncomfortable thinking on their toes, and, you know, it's, uh, I consider that uh, unfortunate, because that's not where wisdom lives, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's learning information, and then there's learning how to learn. Mm -hmm. And the learning how to learn thing is all you need to learn. Because once you've taught yourself how to actually learn something, then you're good to go. You can go learn anything else that you want. But as you were saying, whenever a person just learns a bunch of things without learning how to actually think in the moment, organically and naturally, then yes, you become bound by your reservoir of predetermined thoughts, which most likely aren't even your own. Yep, that's the gig, and which is why I think so often you see historical shifts in perception. So why, you know, the overwhelming majority of people in the 1600s would have no problem with slavery. But suddenly, if you say the same thing in 1900s, you are a freak. <laughs> right. like that shows you that most people don't really, don't really think that, you know, they are, they are going with the dogma. You know, they are going with, uh, and that's why only when the prevailing popular opinion about that one dogma changes, then they are ready to embrace the new dogma, but not because they really thought about it themselves. So in that sense, it's funny because I don't think many people can go through decades of life on earth and there was never really a person there. There was never really an individual. There was never really a real human being. There was just somebody who got some program downloaded in their brain and they kept repeating it all their life and ran with it. But there was really no individual agency involved there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like humans often are really designed to take the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. I think we're sort of built to conserve our energy in some ways and don't go looking for trouble. Oh, I'm all for that. I think, like, no, 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 no. There's more to this. <laughs> and so if you think about whenever one goes to, you know, we will express our energy out of necessity. So if you think about some hunter and gatherer type of situation, 
well, sure, they don't want to necessarily go walk around for eight miles, but mm -hmm. they get up and go do it because it's necessary to acquire food and other resources. That's a mental override that they're very comfortable with because it's clear that, well, I have to do this. There's no way around it. Yep. I think that people confront that and exercise and the performance of exercise. Whenever somebody goes running or something, the first two minutes, everything in your body is telling you, this is boring. Stop. You don't need to do this. You don't have to do this. Stop. But you're not tired. It's just this program that's telling you, why are you doing this? You don't have to exert yourself. All it takes is a little bit of mental override to press on. And once you push through that, the body kicks into performance mode and you're able to run two or three or four miles or however long you go. I think that intellectually, the same thing applies is that the mind and the ability to think critically, to think for yourself, to stand up for your own ideas, to draw your own conclusions, often is taking the path of least resistance. People allow themselves to be colored by the pigment of the general themes of the day in society, and that it only takes a small amount of recognizing that and mental override to overcome the agreeable themes of what's in the water right now and begin to think for yourself. Which is um, probably that's why people don't do it, because it's hard work. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know, being alive is hard work. So what, you know? It's like, <laughs> you're not ready for that. And I get it. You know, I can see why you may not feel like it. But then, you know, why wake up in the morning? Mm -hmm. why, why exist, you know, to be or not to be, so to speak, right? It's like, I get it. You know, I understand. But that's what life is. It is work. It is. It can be fun work. It can be, again, it doesn't have to be this self-flagellating work, but it is work. So either learn to enjoy it or check out because that's where otherwise they're really, you're just going through the motion and you're just this one force being pushed around by external forces with really little say so over the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that it only takes a bit of, it's only just a small amount of effort to get into patterns in life in which you'll remain rather if not happy, at least open. Mm -hmm. And openness leads to recursive positivity because the thing that is so interlocked into human DNA that awakens the spirit is seeing over the edge of the mountain and figuring out what's on the other side. It's so deep in us that we can't really get out of it. That's why people are always going to see new movies. They're always trying to, they're traveling. You know, we want to see what else. And I think that if you remain open to ideas and refining your own ideas, then there will be a baseline level of biological gratification that one feels. Yes, indeed. And speaking of biological gratification, I think it has been you know, well over an hour that I haven't stared at Kim Kardashian's ass. I think we need to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I you can... I use that example because I really am not into Kim Kardashian in the <laughs> possible way. But you know, it's something that people know. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> It's the theme that's in the water, man. So before right. we wrap up, we have about 10 minutes or so left. So I just want to come back to... 
I am genuinely curious what a few more of Bellelli's guidelines for thriving are. You mentioned the relationship of physicality. Um, mm-hmm. If there are a couple more, I'd, I'd love to hear a few more that you have. Well, I guess side note on physicality is the sex. You know, that's a component of physicality, but it's also kind of its own thing. And that's a huge one in terms of, um, you know, figure out how you relate to it. And there are clearly healthy ways to do it and unhealthy ways to do it. And by healthy and unhealthy, of course, again, subjective element is huge in what's healthy or unhealthy in this. I'm not arguing that everybody should stick by the same rules in that department. But figuring out what's healthy for you and what's not healthy for you, that's kind of a big deal. Um, I'm interested in whatever helps. And I guess, you know, one can go into the details of what that may be. But one of the qualities that I'm most interested in in developing and nourishing is uh, kindness. Something that to me is to me, there's more wisdom in kindness than there is in intelligence in a purely nerdy kind of way. You know, um, because kindness is behavior. Kindness is, uh, it has an emotional and practical impact on other human beings. Um, intelligence may or may not. And so to me, kindness is a form of applied intelligence. And, um, and again, you know, what exactly is kind, you know, if you are able to make people around you smile, if you brighten their day, if you are able to help a kid, you know, those are all, that is kindness. That is something that some other human beings day has just been improved because of uh, the interaction with you. That's awesome. That to me is uh, one of the most important priorities that anyone should strive for. And again, you know, we're not doing the seven steps to kindness. You know, it's like you figure it out what exactly means in your own life. You know, it's like, you know, we're not playing cult leader here telling you this is how you do it. But it is essential for everyone to figure out and and implement it within their own daily life. Like I see, if I can go on a minor tangent on this. Please. I see so often people who, even in their loving relationships, and by loving, I mean, you know, the um, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever the fuck, you know, family members, friends, people that you are supposed, supposedly they are in your life because you care about them. People being really not that, you know, snarky humor being dominant, putting each other down as a form of entertainment being dominant. And I'm not saying there's never a place for it, you know, there's, but you know, it's like super spicy food, you know, you throw a little bit in there, it's kind of fun. You throw more than that, you just completely kill the food. And I see that I work a lot. Like I see way, like one thing I pay attention to is how often people tell each other something sweet, something kind, something in appreciation of the people in your life, you know, kids in your life, significant others in your life, friends in your life. How often do you actually use words that let them know why they are important to you, why you love them, how it makes you excited that they are there with you in life. And, you know, lots of people who probably really honestly, truly care about each other, never do it or very rarely do it. And I'm like, fuck man, that's life right there. 
like why about we put more emphasis on that aspect because you could not have gained one point in iq but if you did that a lot more man you would improve the quality of your life and everyone else's around you absolutely i think that that type of letting someone know that you care about what you're feeling or even a friend letting them know how you appreciate them mm-hmm. what you how how they enrich your life i think all those things you're exactly right those are really just the fundamental elements of happiness big time and um and again and i think maybe i'm I hope I wasn't like in the beginning when I'm arguing this almost anti-intellectual position of like, you know, I don't really give a fuck about intelligence, give making Kardashians ass. I, of course, I'm using a particular definition of intelligence, there's, which is the more abstract sense of intelligence. Whereas this to me, what I'm talking about is a very applied more behavior driven kind of thing that to me it is intelligence, but it's not necessarily the way it's defined because some people may be the sweetest, kindest human on earth. They may improve the quality of life around them. They may do all the things, but if you talk to them, they don't necessarily sound like the smartest person you're ever going to run into. And I just don't care. I'd rather be around them than around anybody else, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's all about, I think, what a person's experience of the same objective nature that we all experience is. And this is, I, I like that you're trying to feel around and find this definition because it's something I've been thinking about recently. And as a matter of fact, it's something I was writing about. I think that thing is, I've been calling it an understanding. Mm-hmm. That's this, this combination of intelligence, awareness, and kindness that when mm-hmm. you put those three things together you get this understanding you get the fact that we are all here it's all temporary and the thing that makes someone feel okay with that is expressing that to them and giving them a, a, an interaction where they can feel you know peaceful and they can feel cared about and witnessed. And I think that understanding the dimensions of your own and everyone else's experience allows that to happen. Yep. And that's, uh, that to me is living. That to me is what interests me in human beings. That's what to me interests me in existence. That's, that's the part that gets you excited to get up in the morning not debating the most arcane point on any philosophical position. Who fucking cares? You know? <laughs> Philosophy is great in the measure that it helps uh, grow your tomatoes in the garden. You know, philosophy is great in the measure that it helps become a certain person. It's not about the kind of thoughts or the ideas that you hold in your head. Um, those if if those ideas that you hold in your head don't have an impact in uh, in your body in your facial expression in your the way you hug people then i really don't want to hear those ideas i just pointless you know it's a mm-hmm. 
masturbatory mental exercise, which is actually, I almost resent what I just said, because when I say masturbatory, masturbation actually deliver orgasms. <laughs> Most of these ideas deliver jack shit. So I'm just like, mm, you know, on my thing. Mm-hmm. Then again, you know, maybe, maybe for somebody works, maybe it's their way to cope. Maybe it's their way, whatever, you know, it's like, again, I'm not judging it in the sense of, fuck you, you're a bad human being if you do these things. I'm purely saying I'm not attracted to that. I find really nothing redemptive in it. I don't find it interesting, but hey, that's my point of view. You know, you don't need to, you don't need to like the same people I like. You don't need to dislike, you know, it's a personal judgment called that one. Right. And I think that philosophy or any intellectual pursuit for the sake of the pursuit is is greatly beneficial. I mean, the amount of things that I've read over my life have contributed in totality to who I am today. And I'll leave that to the listeners to judge if that's a good or a bad thing. But (laughs) I think that, you know, I I personally love the most nitty gritty, hardcore intellectual conversations. But it's a matter of how someone's saying them as we discussed, but importantly, coming back around to you know, schools of thought or, or philosophies or whatever, man, it's all about what you do with what you hear. That's what makes it all either valuable or a, uh, or invaluable. Yeah, man. Just, um, I think I was reading, I believe I was 14 years old and I was reading this Timothy Leary book and there was this thing where he went on about how it's about how you wake up in the morning, how you walk, how you dance, how you fight, how you, how you act basically, how you carry yourself in the world. That's where the whole game is about. Um, all, and so ideas are very important and even intellectual nerdiness can be important because that can be the spark from which this transformation takes place. That's the origin. Things don't happen just in a vacuum. They usually happen because you add them in your, in your mind first, you envision them first before you can manifest them into reality. Mm-hmm. But the real game is manifesting these qualities into reality. That's where it's at. Um, otherwise you're just stuck at stage one into this mental game, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is all swirling around and getting close to Taoism, I think. Yeah. And even since like, when we say stuff like Taoism, even that I don't care about per se. I don't care about Taoism. I don't care about history. I don't care about martial arts. I don't care about all the things that I actually do enjoy. I don't really care about them in and of themselves. I care in the measure that those things, however, whatever label we attach to them, have an impact on life. And yeah, it just so happens that Taoist ideas for the most part, you know, sometimes I read some Taoist stuff and I'm like, this is boring as hell, man, this sucks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of things that I've read under the label Taoism that I find super applicable to life, very useful. And, and I see it, you know, I see when they, I make them mine and I run with it, how, what an impact they have. And, and I love it. But, you know, if we can be at the Taoist conference with all the other Taoist <laughs> philosophy, I'm going to shoot myself. You yes. Know? Oh, yes. Up about the Tao already. Let's go play. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. So maybe you're, maybe you are the Xuanzu character. 
<laughs> Leave me alone to drag my tail in the mud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Life is to be enjoyed. Life is seriously to be enjoyed. And uh, that's that's what that's what it's about at the end of the day. Everything else is whatever doesn't lead there, not really a waste of time. Mm-hmm. I think you could have just stopped at the first few words. Life is to be enjoyed. Yeah, man. I, I always have a tendency to be overly verbose and uh, <laughs> never know when to stop, which is that would be something that Daoism would say, that's a fuck up right there. Knowing <laughs> when to stop is an art. But the beautiful part about Taoism is that it also contradicts itself in every every single page. And so it'll say, you need to know when to stop. But if you ever stop, you'll be getting it wrong. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I think, in fact, there's a, it's a fine line. It's a significant line between contradiction and paradox. Contradiction is often, you know, intellectually you screwed up mm-hmm. or just being a hypocrite or, you know. Paradox is an appreciation for the fact that life at the deepest level is not this or that, is this and that. And so when we're used to a dualistic worldview where everything is uh, in binary opposition, somebody who makes one statement and makes a seemingly opposite statement, that must be a contradiction and it may not necessarily be. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just showing you how there are different sides to the same equation. Mm-hmm. And I love that that type of thinking because, or that syst- systems of conveying information because what happens is that you get shown one potentiality, you get shown a pol- polar potentiality, and trying to compute how either of those things fit into each other makes a person think for themselves. Mm-hmm. Most definitely, my man. Okay, Mr. Bellelli, it's always an absolute pleasure speaking with you. You are awesome. You're the best. And... You are- Best judgment on earth. I think, you know, you're, uh, nobody has uh, your grasp on human character and potential is unparalleled. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for yeah, it. Man. It's, uh, it's always fun with you too. It's, uh, it's great. I feel like I had, I had a blast today. I think this conversation was awesome. We've been running back and forth with, actually on that note, I'm even thinking and we can tell listeners live as it's happening. I actually would, wouldn't mind if you want, we can release these on both feeds mm-hmm. and I can throw it on the drunken Taoist and we can have it on yours and cause I really enjoy this one. Absolutely. Let's do it. I did too, man. I feel like we, um, we really scrunched our intellectual faces and got to some, some reason there. Good stuff. <laughs> and, uh, we don't see it cause we're on Skype, but I'm folding my hands together in appreciation and thank you. Likewise. All right. Thank you, Daniele. Well, the funky music means one thing, and that's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. That was, uh, you know, those guys went deep, and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Daniele and I will be back in two weeks. Want to thank real quick the folks that uh, helped put this all together on it. 
Dr. Sarah and Sure Design. You guys know that drill for sure. Uh, definitely want to let you know that the Taoist Lecture Series is available. So if you want to get deeper into Taoism, I think it's 18 different little uh, 20 to 40 minute takes on different aspects of Taoism. There goes Max the Cat. Watch yourself. Daniele's book, Not Afraid, is also available in audiobook if you want to give that a listen. And I definitely want to give a shout-out to Daisy House. I got a new single and a B-side available at Bandcamp slash Daisy House. So go ahead and buy their record. They're the folks that give us our awesome theme song since way back. And we love to see them sell a bunch of records. So that's it. A little surprise episode. And uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye. <laughs> And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. Maybe I don't want to hear this. No, you don't. <laughs> in questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenza di Dio. Dan can show you the way, yeah? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great. Fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. Dun, dun, dun. I completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're right? outro. Oh, we're outro. Okay, sorry. So that's... <laughs> So let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and... Uh, uh, your accent, it just... Whatever that movie is you were trying to tell me about... Can you translate for me, please? I believe the word was Tombstone. Yeah, that one, exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky.